Let's turn in our copies of God's Word to the book of Exodus. This is the second book of Moses, the second book in your Bible. Exodus, the 32nd chapter. Let's hear now God's Word as He speaks to us through this reading. Now when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered together to Aaron and said to him, Come, make us gods that shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And Aaron said to them, Break off the golden earrings, which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people broke off the golden earrings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and he fashioned it with an engraving tool and made a molded calf. Then they said, This is your God, O Israel that brought you out of the land of Egypt. So when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. Then they rose early on the next day, offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go, get down, for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They have made themselves a molded calf and worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and indeed it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, and I will make of you a great nation. Then Moses pleaded with the Lord his God and said, Lord, Why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians speak and say, He brought them out to harm them, to kill them in the mountains, and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce wrath and relent from this harm to your people." Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by yourself and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have spoken of I give to your descendants, and they shall inherit it forever. So the Lord relented from the harm which He said He would do to His people. And Moses turned and went down from the mountain, and the two tablets of the testimony were in his hand. 
The tablets were written on both sides. On the one side and on the other they were written. Now the tablets were the work of God and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. And when Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, There is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, It is not the noise of the shout of victory, nor the noise of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing I hear. So it was as soon as he came near the camp that he saw the calf and the dancing. So Moses' anger became hot, and he cast the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. Then he took the calf which they had made, burned it in the fire, and ground it to powder. And he scattered it on the water and made the children of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought so great a sin upon them? So Aaron said, Do not let the anger of my Lord become hot. You know the people that they are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods that shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And I said to them, Whoever has any gold, let them break it off. So they gave it to me, and I cast it into the fire. And this calf came out. Now when Moses saw that the people were unrestrained, for Aaron had not restrained them to their shame among their enemies, then Moses stood in the entrance of the camp and said, Whoever is on the Lord's side, come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together to him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, let every man put his sword on his side and go in and out from entrance to entrance throughout the camp. And let every man kill his brother, every man his companion, and every man his neighbor. So the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And about 3,000 men of the people fell that day. Then Moses said, Consecrate yourselves today to the Lord, that He may bestow on you a blessing this day, for every man has opposed his son and his brother. Now it came to pass on the next day that Moses said to the people, You have committed a great sin. So now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin." Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, Oh, these people have committed a great sin and have made for themselves a God of gold. Yet now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, I pray, blot me out of your book which you have written. And the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. Now therefore, go lead the people to the place which I have spoken to you. 
Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit for punishment, I will visit punishment upon them for their sin. So the Lord plagued the people because of what they did with the calf which Aaron made. May the Lord bless the reading of His Word to us this morning. Amen. Seeking the Lord's help and guidance this morning, let's turn back to the passage that we just read from Exodus chapter 32. Exodus chapter 32. For many of us, a familiar passage. This is the golden calf incident, which marks a serious low point in the life of God's people of Israel under Moses in the wilderness, having been liberated by the mighty hand of God from the house of bondage in Egypt, God leads His people forth under Moses and Aaron, and here as Moses goes up on the top of Mount Sinai to receive God's law, God's revelation, over time the people become concerned. Where's Moses? Perhaps something has happened to him, perhaps he's not coming back, and so having lost that visible token of God's presence among them, they turn to an idol. And Aaron, with his uh, apparent codependency on the approval of the people, is all too eager to satisfy their lust, to replace God, to replace the Creator with this creature with this dead idol to exchange the glory of God for that of an ox, not even a real ox, uh, a golden ox, a molten image. Well, we've been considering idolatry for the last several weeks in our series on Romans chapter 1. And so, with some knowledge here of the context and of the sin of idolatry that Israel has committed, and some sense of the gravity of this sin and the judgment of God against His people, with, with that in mind, we're not going to spend a ton of time expounding those things because we've already done that in, in weeks past. But instead, we're going to focus our attention upon verse 26. In the wake of this great sin of idolatry by the people of Israel, God sends Moses back down the mountain to confront them for their sin. Led by the Spirit of God, He takes in righteous anger and indignation the tablets of the covenant and dashes them to pieces as a visible sign and indication that the people have broken the law of God and broken covenant with God. And... He then proceeds to confront the people. Verse 26, Then Moses stood in the entrance of the camp and said, Whoever is on the Lord's side, come to Me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together to Him. Now at this point, you ask, well, why is he gathering the sons of Levi? Well, he's gathering them together to be the instrument of God's wrath against the people. God uses many instruments 
to accomplish His purposes and to perform His just judgments. He used fire from heaven on Sodom and Gomorrah. He used a great deluge in the days of Noah to flood the earth and drown His enemies. He used Israel herself, the armies of the Lord of hosts, to utterly wipe out so many of the Canaanite tribes as a judgment against them. Sometimes He uses human instruments. On Mount Carmel, He used Elijah to slaughter the priests or the prophets of Baal. So God can use whatever instrument that He decides to use. And here, Moses, through the leading of the Holy Spirit, calls those who are on the Lord's side to gather to Him. And the sons of Levi respond and they execute judgment on the idolaters who are dancing and playing. Perhaps there's some sexual sin involved here. That's hotly debated and so we won't get into that discussion. But they're clearly engaging in pagan worship practices and yet they're calling it a feast to Jehovah their God. It is an utter mess and it is offensive to God and he says that's it and he uses these human instruments called by Moses and commissioned to kill and to destroy his enemies to 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 manifest his displeasure later on he sends a plague so his judgment is not complete but this is a signal to everyone that God does not tolerate this unbelief and this disobedience, replacing him with a golden calf. In addition, uh, we're told something about the 3,000 that fell that day, that they were the brethren, the companions, the neighbors of these Levites. People they knew, people they loved, humanly speaking, and yet God called them and they followed the call to be the agents of God's judgment against them. And that's really what Moses is saying in verse 26, using the the immortal words of the authorized version, who is on the Lord's side? Who is on the Lord's side? We have many affiliations, many people that we love, Many ways in which we have loyalties and solidarity with so many institutions, patriotism in our nation, ties to our local community, friends and family. But the Lord says, who is on my side? Jesus Himself says that those who are not willing to cut all other ties, even to the point of acting in such a way that it seems that they hate their father and mother and their relatives, their friends and family for His sake. Who's willing to do that? If you're not, you're not worthy to be called His disciple, He says. Who is on the Lord's side? This is a staggering claim that God makes upon the loyalty of His people. Who is on the Lord's side? Moses says, And if you are on the Lord's side, come to me. Well, we need to consider this. Just by way of preliminary observation, this text tells us that the Lord has a side. The Lord has a side. So often, people try to portray God in our day as though He doesn't take sides. As though the Lord is just 
all things to all men. All roads lead to God. If you're sincere, it doesn't really matter. God doesn't pick sides. God is not a partisan God. There are these religious and theological debates, but God doesn't fall on one side or the other. And so we just need to all come together. Every brand of Christianity, true or false, we all need to come together. Indeed, all religions need to come together. And even beyond that, uh, all humanity needs to come together, even atheists, because there's something of God everywhere in everyone. God doesn't take sides. This sort of pantheism, God is everywhere, God is in everything, has overtaken the minds of many in our day. But this tells us that that is all nonsense. The Lord has a side. You look at Jesus writing letters to the seven churches in Asia Minor in the, the chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation. Jesus takes sides. He says there's a controversy. There are these people called the Nicolaitans. I hate their works and I hate their doctrine. He takes sides. The Lord has a side. He has a cause. And we're either for Him or we are against Him. There is no neutrality. Who is on the Lord's side? In fact, you see the opposite danger, really, the opposite extreme in our call to worship where believers can take their stand on the Lord's side and they can be zealous for the cause of the Lord's work and the Lord's people and the Lord's covenant. And yet they can very subtly fall into the error of beginning to think that it's actually the Lord who's on their side more so than that they are on the Lord's side. Now it is true, if God is for us, who can be against us? It's true that God is on the side of His people. But God is on the side of His people because His people are on His side. Yes, He's done that sovereignly. He's put them there. But God is on the side of those who are on His side. And when Joshua approaches the pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ, the commander of the Lord's army, Joshua says, are you for us or for our adversaries? Now, in one sense, there's nothing wrong with that question because, you know, is God for His church or is He for the world? Well, we could say He's for His church, He's for His people, but you see there's some danger if we're not careful in speaking in that way. Look at Exodus 32. You could say, is God for Israel or for the Egyptians? Well, He's against the Egyptians, but when His people are against Him, He's against them. He slaughtered them. He sent plagues among them. They died in the wilderness. Uh, Yes, He worked it for good, but recognize, my friends, that God is not so much on our side as we need to be on His side. And the angel of the Lord doesn't say, yes, I'm for you and against your adversaries. He says, no. Are you for us or for our adversaries? He says, no. Stop asking that question. Stop thinking like that. Stop thinking about what I'm going to do to help your cause and you start thinking about what you're going to do to help my cause. Because no, As the commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. It's not, the army of the Lord is not your army, it's not your cause, 
It's my cause. Are you on my side? Are you on the Lord's side? Who is on the Lord's side? If you're on the Lord's side, I'm with you and full speed ahead. But I define my cause. I define my kingdom. So we need to be careful uh, that we don't get this wrong. Second Chronicles chapter 15 and verse 2. Listen to what the Lord says through the prophet Azariah speaking to Asa. Hear me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you while you are with Him. If you seek Him, He will be found by you. But if you forsake Him, He will forsake you. My friends, this is, this is how God's covenant works in terms of God's blessing on His people. Not saying that the covenant is grounded in the people's obedience, but their experience of God's blessing, of God's presence and power being with them to bless them, is contingent upon their obedience. The Lord is with you while you are with Him. You step outside of that sphere of obedience and you step outside the sphere of blessing. And that's just how it works. And my friends, the Lord has a side. And He has a side in this world. There are two sides for Him or against Him. And when we come before the judgment seat of Christ at the last day, Matthew 25 says, there's going to be the right hand and the left hand. This is something that exists now in history, but it's something that is ultimately a reality in the world to come. There is heaven and hell. The Lord has a side. If you're not on His right side, if you're not His sheep, then you are cursed everlastingly as a seed of the serpent, as a goat in hell. So it's important to be on the Lord's side. Who's on the Lord's side this morning? Now the Lord's side has something of a complexity to it. We can think of, as I mentioned, the church versus the world. Jesus says in Matthew 16, verse 18, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So you've got Satan's kingdom, the gates of hell. You've got the Lord Jesus Christ's kingdom, the church. The church versus the world. James 4, verse 4 says, that friendship with the world, the kingdom of Satan, is enmity toward God. You have to choose a side. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 12, Paul speaks and differentiates there between insiders and outsiders. Those who are subject to church discipline, who are members of the visible church, they're inside. Those who are not members in good standing, actively members in a local visible church, they're Outsiders, they're not subject to church discipline. The church versus the world. There's also a differentiation between wheat and tares. Within the church, the evil one has sown seeds of apostasy. He's sown seeds, the children of the wicked one. Matthew 13, verses 38 and 39. Not all Israel is of Israel. Satan sows seeds. There are weeds or tares in the wheat field. And so yes, church versus world, but also within the church, Galatians 2.4 says that there are false brethren that sneak their way in. And so there are the wheat and the tares. There's a conflict even in the visible church of Jesus Christ between true believers and 
those who are not. And finally, even among true believers, there is the conflict between good and evil. So who is on the Lord's side? Well, He's on the side of His church in a sense, but then He's on the side of true believers in the church fighting against false brethren. But then even among the true brethren, He's on the side of those who are being obedient. Sometimes there are disagreements among believers, such as Galatians 2.11, where the Apostle Paul, a true believer, a true apostle, has to confront the Apostle Peter and rebuke him to his face Peter's a true believer. Peter's a true apostle. But there's this conflict between good and evil, obedience and disobedience, truth and error, even among true brethren in the true church, true apostles. Yet there's a conflict between good and evil. And who is on the Lord's side? Who is on the Lord's side? Well, let's flesh this out. What does it mean to be on the Lord's side? And it involves an inward root and an outward fruit. Who is on the Lord's side, come to me. Whoever's on the Lord's side, Moses says, act upon it, demonstrate it by coming to me and obeying this command of the Lord to execute judgment. So being on the Lord's side involves an inward root. It's something that is true of you even before you come to Moses, or you come to the greater Moses, the Lord Jesus Christ, and act upon it. It's something that was true of the Levites, and because it was true, they then responded actively and came to Moses at the disposal of the Lord. An inward root and an outward fruit. So that's something of it. But what does it mean to be on the Lord's side here today? Let's look at a number of ways in which we can be on the Lord's side. What does it mean? to be on the Lord's side. First, it means to repent and believe in Christ. Fundamentally, in order to be on the Lord's side, you must repent of your sin. You must turn from sin. That language of repentance or turning is language that fits the idea of the Lord's side. You were conceived and born in your soul in unrighteousness. You were conceived and born, even if you were born in the visible church and baptized, nevertheless, conceived and born in sin. David was a covenant child, but he was conceived and born in sin, Psalm 51 says. In need of the saving grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that He would turn from sin and Satan and self and self-righteousness to the Lord. Turning from Sin and self to the Lord Jesus Christ. You must repent. You must turn from your sin and by faith embrace Christ as your portion, as your satisfaction, as your righteousness, your sanctification, your redemption, your wisdom from God, as your all in all. You have to turn from sin and believe in Christ and surrender your life to Him. Moses is but a picture of Christ. Who is on the Lord's side? Come to Me. Jesus says whoever is on the Lord's side, if, you're, if the Spirit is working in your heart right now, if you're really on the Lord's side, you're going to look to Him. You're going to come to Me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, Jesus says, and I will give you rest. Come to Him. 
If you do not come to Him, you're not on the Lord's side. Doesn't matter if you've been baptized. Doesn't matter if you're religious. Doesn't matter if you're a systematic theological genius. It doesn't matter if you don't come to Him and surrender yourself and take up the work that He places in your hands. You have to believe. You have to come. You you have to be on the Lord's side in that way. It's not enough to be near the kingdom. Jesus says in Mark 12, verse 34, that a certain scribe asked Him a question and Jesus gave an answer and the scribe liked the answer and the scribe said some things that made some sense and Jesus says, you are not far from the kingdom. And that's a beautiful thing to be not far from the kingdom. But the fact of the matter is, in Noah's day, if you were not far from the ark, that didn't save you from the flood. You still drowned. In fact, the person who was standing right next to the door of the ark, leaning on it, touching the door, was destroyed in the flood. You you can't just be not far from the kingdom. And hopefully that scribe eventually came to Jesus through faith and repented of his sin and his unbelief. But the point is, it's not enough to be not far from the kingdom. Ephesians 2.17 says that Christ has come to proclaim the gospel of peace to those who are far and those who are near. So whether you grew up in an atheistic home, in a pseudo-Christian cult, outside the covenant of God, outside of His church, under evil influences, or whether you grew up in the most biblically sound church imaginable, the fact is that you need to be saved. You need to repent. You need to believe. It's not enough to be near. Jesus preached the Gospel to people that were near. People that were members of the visible church. Who is on the Lord's side? It means to repent and believe in Christ. Secondly, it means to publicly profess Christ as a communicant member of the church. To be on the Lord's side you have to publicly profess Christ. Whoever is on the Lord's side is not just going to come to Him, but they're going to profess Him. Romans 10, 9 and 10 tell us that in order to be saved, you have to believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. But you have to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Jesus warns that those who are unwilling to confess and profess Him before men, He will not confess or profess them before the Father on Judgment Day. If you're not willing to own Him publicly as your Savior, as your Lord now, He's not going to own you and shelter you under the shadow of His wings on Judgment Day from the wrath of God. Who is on the Lord's side? That's a question for covenant children. Are you on the Lord's side? If you are, you must publicly profess Christ and you must come to Him in His ordinance of the Lord's Supper. Whoever is on the Lord's side, come to Me. That's not just true of new converts, though it is true of new converts. Acts 2.47 Those who were being saved by the Spirit at Pentecost, those who were on the Lord's side, who repented, who believed, They were filled with the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit led them and added them to the church. They professed their faith and they became communicant members as Acts 2 tells us. They partook in the breaking 
of bread, which Paul says declares and proclaims the Lord's death. It's a public proclamation. It's not just me and Jesus, but it's a corporate profession, a covenant renewal. It's a table in the presence of our enemies declaring the reality and the efficacy and power of the Lord's death and resurrection. You have a duty, if you're on the Lord's side, come to Him in the Lord's Supper and proclaim it. You have a duty to own it, proclaim it, to sound the trumpet in this lost and dying world by your public profession of faith through even that ordinance of the Lord's Supper. That's the the responsibility of a new convert but also covenant children. It's not just the new convert, it's the covenant child. Elijah speaks to the covenant people of Israel on Mount Carmel, and he says to them, why halt ye between two opinions? Why falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow Him. If Baal is God, follow Him. Jesus says to the Laodiceans, I'd rather that you were cold or hot, but you're lukewarm, and so I spew you out of my mouth. Stop sitting on the fence. Stop faltering between two opinions. If Baal is God, if the world is real, and if that's where it's at, and if your portion is in the world and the physical pleasures and treasures of this life, then walk right out the door now. What's the point of being in a worship service? But if the Lord is God... Don't sit on the fringes. Don't sit on the fence. Don't be content to be near to the kingdom. Whoever is on the Lord's side, come to Him, profess Him, commune with His people, serve Him all the days of your life. If the Lord is God, follow Him. Who is on the Lord's side this morning here today? Now when I say that, what I'm not saying is, covenant children, you have this obligation such that you should profess faith and come to the table even if you're not right with God. Even if God hasn't saved you. Even if you don't really understand or believe the Gospel. Even if you don't really from the heart affirm those membership vows that you're taking. That is not what I'm saying. And many have professed faith feeling pressure from their parents or from the church. You have an obligation to believe and repent, and then to come to the Lord. In other words, you have an obligation to be on the Lord's side, and it's because of that that you then come to Him. So you need to start at step number one, repenting and believing. You you need to work through those membership vows and meditate and think and examine yourself and talk to your elders and speak to your parents. And you need to take seriously the obligation to truly trust in Christ, and then flowing out of that true conversion to profess Him before men. Our vows say that you're going to be reading your Bible. You're going to be engaging in private prayer. You're going to be worshiping the Lord with His people, which means in spirit and in truth. So, the idea that you would just take that vow out of obligation so that people stop uh, nagging you about your duty to profess faith Uh, That's not what the vow is. And that is a taking of God's name in vain. So please don't misunderstand. I'm saying from the heart, get off the fence. Who is on the Lord's side? Thirdly, 
To be on the Lord's side means to forsake habitual bosom sins. Habitual bosom sins. The Puritans spoke of those sins that we hold close to our bosom, that that we embrace, that we have this affection for. We love these sins. We'll, We'll part with other sins. We'll repent of other sins. But there are these certain sins that give us comfort and we won't give them up. Like Herod, who did many things. He heard John the Baptist and responded in many ways, many encouraging ways. And many of the shallow religious leaders in our own day probably would have had him baptized and coming to the Lord's table. But he would not put away, he would not part with Herodias, his brother's wife, from his bosom. He would not part with her. Who is on the Lord's side today? If you're on the Lord's side you're going to forsake your habitual bosom sins. You can't serve two masters. Master sin tells you that if you sin, if you continue in this habitual sin, you're going to have all these goodies. The law of sin promises you you do this sin and you will have life, you'll have enjoyment. And if you don't do it, Sin, master sin, threatens you with the lousiness and the dissatisfaction that you're going to experience and you continue to do it. You continue to commit that bosom sin because you are sold under sin. Even as a believer, you've given yourself back under the merciless tyranny of slave master sin. But the Apostle Paul says you need to be liberated by the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus, by the law of the Spirit of God. A different law. A law of, the, of, of Christ Himself who is your Master. Who says, I will bless your obedience and I will make the consequences of your disobedience to be as Israel drinking down the bitter cup of the powder of the golden calf. Listen to your Master, the Lord Jesus Christ. You can't serve both Him and money. You can't serve both Him and your bosom sin and lust. Romans 6.16 Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? You're going to offer up your body as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, or are you going to present the members of your body as servants to unrighteousness, to wickedness, to impurity, to lust, to greed, to anger? Who is on the Lord's side? If you're on the Lord's side, the Lord is your Master, and you take His threatening seriously, and you take His promises seriously, and you reject the attempt of slave master sin to intimidate you or entice you into continuing in sin. When you sin with your body in sexual sin, you are uniting Jesus Christ to a harlot. Think about that. Think about what that is saying about you. Think about what it's saying about Jesus. Who is on the Lord's side? Who takes the Lord seriously? His holiness, His purity, His grace, His justice. Who takes Him seriously? Whoever is on the Lord's side, come out from that sin 
meditate. And sometimes I think in these cases of habitual sin, we think we're going to overcome the sin just by sheer willpower. My friends, that's not how it works. You need to meditate upon the truth. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. You need to think about how sinful that sin is. You need to think about how glorious God is. How just He is. How holy He is. Write up a list on either side. Here are the reasons that I want to go through with this sin. Here are the things I'm afraid of would happen if I deny myself. And here are the things I want out of it. And on the other side of the list, write down, here are the reasons why God commands me not to do it. Here are the negative consequences for myself, for the glory of God, for my body, for other people. Here are the blessings that I'm foregoing. Write it out. Think it through. Inform your will with the truth of God. And by the end of it, by the grace of God, you will cast away that sin like an unclean thing and chuckle that you were ever brought under the tyranny of the urgent lust for that sin, which is utter folly. It's not just evil. It doesn't even make any sense when you begin to think of what you've actually been tempted to do. Who is on the Lord's side? Fourthly, it means to refuse conformity to the pattern of this world. If you're on the Lord's side, you will refuse to be conformed to the pattern of this world. You won't be enticed by the world's smiles. You won't be intimidated by the world's frowns. The Bible says the Lord has a controversy with the nations. He has a controversy with the world, its priorities, its ideologies, its lifestyle decisions. And whose side are you on? Specifically, this, this type of issue often comes up, more often than not, it comes up with respect to the Sabbath day. God calls you to worship and rest from your worldly employments and recreations, from your schoolwork, from your housework, from, from your work, from your pleasure, from your entertainments, from sports, all these things so that you can devote the day entirely to Him. And there are ways to do that, that you, you can gain a head of steam in your Christian life where you're keeping the Sabbath and then all of a sudden there are other people that make a claim of obligation upon you. Friends, family, they're asking you to do something. There's some event that you feel obliged in a sense to be present at, but it's on the Lord's Day or your job, your employer asks you to do this or that and now all of a sudden it's not just you and your family keeping the Sabbath, but you're having to take a stand in the sight of people. Maybe they're even Christians and, and they think you're crazy because they don't believe in the Sabbath. They don't believe in the fourth commandment. Uh, and, and what do you do? Well, you ask yourself this question. Who is on the Lord's side? If you're on the Lord's side, you'll keep the Lord's day. The fear of man brings a snare. And the Christian who is brought to bow down before the influence of the wicked is as a polluted fountain. Proverbs 25-26 Don't give in. Don't conform. Who is on the Lord's side? In addition, to be on the Lord's side means to oppose, according to your place and calling, scandalous corporate sin in the church. Obviously, the church always has sin here and there. We need to encourage and exhort each other. And, and that there's something of that covering a multitude of sins in love as well. But when there are scandalous corporate sins in the life of the church, 
you as a member and myself as an officer, we have a duty to oppose these things according to our place and calling. When there is false and dangerous doctrine in the church, when there is idolatry in our worship, when there is a lack of discipline for obvious scandalous sins in the church, it doesn't matter if everybody else is going along with it. Pretty much everybody else was singing and dancing unrestrained in their idolatry and possibly even sexual immorality in Exodus 32 around the golden calf. Verse 3 says that all the people were doing this, but the sons of Levi were on the Lord's side and they came to the Lord and they stood for the Lord. Paul was willing to rebuke even the Apostle Peter. Paul even says in 1 Corinthians 11, there are divisions among you and that's bad, but in a sense it's understandable. Because when there is gross sin in the church, you should have divisions. Those who are on the side of truth and righteousness ought to be distinguished. They ought to have a witness. They ought to oppose, even as Paul opposing Peter, the scandalous corporate sins in the life of the church. Jesus says, who is on the Lord's side today? Who is on the Lord's side Are you willing to stand with Christ and swim upstream and blow the trumpet when when everybody else is trying to take a nap? Are you willing to come out from among them and be separate and go to Christ outside the camp lest you share in the plagues of unbelief and disobedience? I'm hastening to a conclusion. I'm not going to get to all my points here, but... Uh, well, I'll, I'll bring up one in the baptism later, but, but uh, last point here in the sermon. And I think this is relevant for us today in the Reformed Presbyterian Church. To be on the Lord's side is to stand in solidarity with biblical church discipline. To be on the Lord's side, and again, baptism points to this, to be baptized is to be set apart in the visible church. It's to be called upon as a covenant child if you're baptized in infancy to take hold of that covenant and to be the Lord's by faith, to be wheat in the wheat field and to pursue good and oppose evil. That's what baptism points to. But my friends, when we are baptized members of the church, we have a duty to recognize biblical church discipline. Jesus says that when discipline is done biblically, when the sin is truly sin, and it is truly scandalous, and when the, the processes of church discipline take place, and it is biblical, then what's bound on earth is bound in heaven. When the church is simply declaring the judgment of the Word of God, and we stand In the way of that declaration, we are standing against God. We are standing against heaven. Who is on the Lord's side? Who is on the side of biblical church discipline? Numbers 16, verse 41, after God killed the people with a plague for complaining, the remaining unrepentant Israelites cried out and they said to Moses and Aaron, you have killed the Lord's people. And there are many people today, sadly, in the broader evangelical and Reformed community that when biblical church discipline takes effect, they look at those who have been the agents of that discipline and they say, in other words, you have killed the Lord's people. How can you do this? You mean-spirited, 
unfair, unjust, unkind. No, no. Who's on the Lord's side? The Lord killed those people. If somebody's cut off from the visible church for sinning against biblical truth, the Lord cut them off. Not the denomination, not the church leaders, not the elders. The Lord did that so you'd better recognize who you're picking a fight with. Who is on the Lord's side? 2 Corinthians 2.6 says that it's the congregation that had a part in actively participating in the implementation of church discipline. In other words, honoring. When there was an excommunication, honoring that excommunication and following through with it. Who is on the Lord's side? Well, my friends, we'll look at something uh, in, in the baptism in a moment to continue this, but who is on the Lord's side? It's not who was on the Lord's side. It doesn't matter what you did last year. It doesn't matter what you did a decade ago. It doesn't matter if you've been faithful early on in your Christian life and you were on the Lord's side and you were fighting the battles of the Lord, but now you say, I'm tired. I'm just going to give in. I'm going to compromise on this or that issue. It really doesn't matter who or what you were in the past. The question comes to you today, And this is when we have a baptism. What are we doing? We're renewing our covenant as a congregation. We're renewing our covenant. We're renewing our baptismal vows. We're renewing our commitment to be on the Lord's side. Not yesterday, not last week, not last year, but right now. Paul says, you ran well, Galatians. Who hindered you? I hope that's never said of me. I hope it's never said of you. Who is on the Lord's side right now? Let's be on the Lord's side. Let's participate by faith actively in this baptism such that every believer here is on the Lord's side and that we can come to Him and we can receive our marching orders and we can do His will. Let's pray. Gracious God, we give thanks that You have placed us on Your side. And that as we have been placed on Your side, You are for us and not against us. And we pray that we would desire to remain faithful on Your side. That we would not be moonlighting from the camp of the Lord's people and crossing over to the other side of the camp, but that we would be on Your side seven days a week 24 hours a day. Renew our commitment. Pour out Your grace upon us. For Jesus' sake, Amen.